0: Hey everyone and welcome to this episode of Youth Politics Action. This is the podcast created by the Youth Political Assembly to help youth connect with politics and government in a better and closer way. My name is Sophie Yang and I'll be your host for today's episode recording from Ontario. Today we're joined by Senator Pate, who's a renowned advocate who has spent 40 years dedicating herself in and around the legal and penal systems of Canada. She works and maintains contact with Canada's marginalized communities to fight for their rights. All right, to begin, could you please tell us a bit about yourself for those who may be unfamiliar? What led you to work in the legal system and in politics?
1: Uh, Well, my background is I trained as a teacher and then as a lawyer, and I grew up a working class kid and was planning to go to law school so that I could have the resources to take care of myself and any other members of my family for whom I would be responsible. And when I got to law school and well, actually on the journey there, I started to become more aware of uh, a number of uh, equity, justice, fairness, equality issues, depending on how you would characterize them. And because that became more and more of interest, by the time I was at law school, I uh, decided to work at, um, I was at Dalhousie in, in uh, Halifax, and there it was one of the first uh, law schools that had a full-time clinic that you could work at for credit. So I did that, and before, the year before, I had uh, engaged in an independent research project on youth justice issues and the what was then to be the new Young Offenders Act. And so because I had that knowledge going into the clinic, um, i And because many of the my colleagues didn 't necessarily want to work with young people uh, or with women, I ended up representing a lot of young people and women and became very acutely aware of that the reality that um, who gets criminalized and imprisoned in this country and quite frankly globally is more a function of the intersections of marginalization and oppression than it is who causes the greatest harm and so I saw that whether it was women trying to escape violence or young people in the um, who had been taken into the care of the state and then were treated less like children than they were property sometimes and where uh, if they did something that I would characterize as typical of an adolescent, um, they might very well be criminalized for it, whether it was taking off, um, you know, not meeting curfew, if they got angry and um, banged something, broke something, those sorts of things. And it was predominantly, uh, you know, kids of African descent who were coming before the courts, some Indigenous. And if they were non-Indigenous, they were more likely to be kids in care than any uh, anybody else. And so that started to raise awareness. And then, um, you know, and basically it continued. And so I, uh, unlike what I thought I was going to law school to do, I ended up... Um, do spending almost thirty-five years working with the John Howard Society at a local level, at the national level, and then for nearly twenty-five years before I was appointed, working with women and and girls in the system, and how I ended up—I you know—I never intended to be in politics. I had been approached to run for parties at different times, but had never agreed to. Um, to do so, in large part because none of them had particularly progressive policies around social, economic, and certainly not criminal legal issues. And so uh, so I never intended to. And then when the decision, the Prime Minister took the decision to try and help make the Senate more independent, a number of people approached me and asked if they could put my name forward. And while I was very chuffed and i was you know it was humbling and an honor that people thought um you know that i might be helpful in terms of the legislative process i never thought it would happen but as i read more about it i i thought well if if in fact the senate is going to become more independent is going to actually live up to its reputation or its expectation of being the voice uh or a voice for those who often aren't represented in the legal process and certainly not in the legislative process, then it might be something of interest. So, I, you know, I did um, agree to have my name stand, but never expected it to happen. So nobody was more surprised than than I was when I received the call from the Prime Minister. And when he made that call, one of the things he said to me was that It was the activism, which, you know, one, I was shocked to hear that word, uh, but it was the activism and leadership in in the areas that I've been working that they wanted to see uh, in the Senate. And so I I have taken that seriously and uh, believe that is a a big part of my responsibility is to ensure that the issues that uh, most often, you know, previously haven't necessarily been front center uh, are whether it's those who are economically disadvantaged Whether it's those who are experiencing racism, um, anti-Indigenous, anti-Black, anti-Asian racism, as well as those who are um, struggling uh, because of all kinds of disabilities and uh, challenges in in terms of trying to negotiate an increasingly inhospitable environment for those who have the least.
0: Mm -hmm. And you've been appointed because of your activism, and I know that you've worked for 40 years working in and around the legal system and the penal systems of Canada to empower the women who are marginalized. And I know that you reached out um, to maintain contact with women in prison to empower them in a closer way because oftentimes we don't recognize the contributions of these marginalized communities enough. I think that's a great way to maintain a close relationship with them. Yeah. yeah, as a member of the Independent Senators group, how is your vision for Canada's future different from other political parties or even compared to the rest of the Senate?
1: Um well, I think we now have three uh, independent groups in the senate there's the at one point there was just the independent senators group but we now have the canadian senators group and the progressive senators group as well and the vision i think for all of us is a more independent senate as in not a partisan senate so not a senate that will just rubber stamp uh what what comes from the government but that will actually take our duties as the second chamber or the chamber often it's referred to as sober second thought to actually look at government legislation and do our best to improve it. So if we see uh, changes that need to be made, then we we have an obligation to try and improve it. Um, we have an obligation to not try and interfere with the elected body where they are fulfilling the will of the electorate. So for instance, if the government run, runs on a campaign promise and they are trying to implement that it would be irresponsible of the Senate to then try and interfere with that. However, if they run on a campaign promise and don't fulfill that, then I'm one senator who believes that we we can and should try and activate those issues. So, for instance, I have two private bills right now on the books. It's the third time I've introduced them since I became a senator. But those private bills are... uh, Part are one is to allow judges discretion to not impose mandatory minimum penalties. The other one is to allow um, criminal convictions, the records to expire. Why did I introduce them? Well, I introduced them first. First, I tried to work with the government because these were campaign promises that they had in 2015. When it was clear they weren't going to act on them, then I introduced private bills that basically did what they had promised to do. Um, and so those would be examples of things where I would say we. We, um, I'm working to try and have that in place. In addition, during the pandemic, we've seen the government pivot and provide incredible supports to many, many people in this country. Uh, and that's laudable, uh, particularly financial supports. However, at least one in seven and or one in 10, depending on what poverty line you use, of uh, folks in this country got no financial support and I think that's problematic and so many of us have been working on issues like a guaranteed livable income, something to replace things like social assistance schemes that currently are criminally low in terms of the amount and also are incredibly judgmental and stigmatizing for people who are uh, living with economic discrimination and, and in impoverished situations and so a number of us trying to do that, in addition to ensuring that we have a robust health care system that includes not just physical health care, but mental health care, pharma care, dental care. And many of us also support free post-secondary education and vocational training, because Canada is a wealthy country that has an awful lot of human and financial resources and natural resources. And we you know, in an, an economically and environmentally sustainable way, we could be ensuring that everybody in this country is fed, housed, clothed, educated, and has adequate, uh, more than adequate, but appropriate health care, housing, clean water, all of those things. And so um, those are the sorts of issues that I think are vitally important that we work on and that I will continue to work on. And one of the reasons um, I believe that when, when, the Senate was being envisioned initially, the responsibility of so-called minority interests was vested in the Senate was because many of these sorts of initiatives, the the benefits of them, you may not see in one electoral cycle. So those who are elected, obviously are trying to get reelected once once they're in office. And so if you don't see the benefits of some of these initiatives right away, they don't become uh, really, you know, economic or election platforms that people necessarily stand on so part of it is also creating the understanding and the awareness of why these sorts of initiatives are really important and when i talk about some of these i often think of you know how we got medicare in this country uh, everybody said it was going to be too costly you wouldn't see the ben- and and certainly you can't you couldn't see the benefits within one short electoral cycle but so important was that initiative that even though it only started in one province in Saskatchewan, so important and so valuable was that as an investment in people in this country that it very quickly rolled out across the country. And although people might still complain sometimes about the cost, it was never rolled back. And I think that's a similar sort of thing we need to see for not just the healthcare system, a more robust healthcare system now, but also our economic system. And as we've seen during this pandemic, far too many people are left behind and if the predictions are true, certainly we're entering into a third wave uh, where some say we're in the third wave right now of this pandemic uh, and that we're likely to see future pandemics. It really behooves us to set up a process that will take care of everybody, not just those who have the most. And so, I'm really concerned that we engage in some income redistribution as well in this country through various methods, uh, and that we actually invest in uh, people and don't just look at recovery according to gross domestic product, but we also look at human well-being indexes.
0: Right, and you've mentioned that so many politicians are consumed in getting re-elected and we kind of lose sight of the goal of actually trying to keep those campaign promises. And I think that the Senate is there to ensure that bills are inclusive. And that's exactly what I want to ask about next. So your role involves important discussions around how to include the interests of minorities in decision-making, as well as certainly investigating and creating ways to deal with social and political issues. And bills can't pass unless the Senate believes the voice of. Underrepresented groups, namely Indigenous people, women, visible minorities, are heard. And I'm curious: Do you believe the House of Commons is doing enough to consider the interests of these underrepresented groups when proposing bills?
1: Well, I think they. I think they try, um, and you know, individual members of Parliament certainly. I can, you know, I could list the number of members of Parliament who are very committed to these issues. But overall, I think, you know, one of the challenges we're seeing is many people who are in these positions come from incredibly privileged positions. And certainly these positions are incredibly privileged positions. That although I'm working class, you know, my roots are working class, by virtue of my education and certainly this job now, I have transitioned far from those roots. And if you don't, if you don't know or if you don't pay attention, you could, you could, you know, be thinking that you're covering all of these issues. So, for instance, the CERB and the the different wage subsidies and all the benefits that were put in place sound like everybody is covered. And certainly the government's motto of recovery for all and leave no one behind and build back better all are excellent. But at the same time, within the shadow of Parliament Hill, we have people who are working full time at minimum wage jobs as personal support workers living in homeless shelters. So steps from Parliament Hill, we have that happening. And it's not just parliamentarians who don't necessarily know that until you point it out to them. Uh, but in fact, you know, I, I commended a doctor who has been working with homeless population, does incredible work here in Ottawa. Um, a, you know, a few months ago, he acknowledged that he didn't realize that women who were working uh, and they're predominantly poor racialized women, uh, often uh, have come to the country looking for uh, work. And, you know, we have migrant workers as well who used to work two and three full-time jobs to make ends meet and now can't afford to rent an apartment. And that's true, not just in Ottawa, but in 90% of the communities in this country, someone working at a minimum wage job uh, full-time cannot afford to rent even a one-bedroom apartment. Now, that that those are the th- sorts of things that I think too many people don't know about, uh, whether it's because it's not within their realm of experience or because we don't step out. I mean, one of the one of the areas that, you know, when I started um, here, uh, you know, I'm in my fifth year now, four and a half years ago, I invited senators to come to prisons because I, I, you know, I thought that if people actually knew what was happening in prisons in this country, they may not be so quick to meet out longer more punitive sentences ignore things like solitary confinement or segregation or structured intervention units and in fact i think that's true a third of the senators have gone to the prisons and it was a third of the senators who refused to pass the government's bill to you know that was was characterized as replacing segregation and uh with structured intervention units and those of us who had been in the prisons said, you know, this just doesn't make sense. What you're saying, based on what we've seen and what we've heard from prisoners, as well as uh, staff working in the institutions, is that this, you know, what you're proposing is, one, um, is just going to rebrand segregation, rename it. Uh, Two, if in fact the oversight does work, it will only be for these units, not for all the other forms of isolation you use. Now, if those senators had not been in the prisons they would not necessarily know that there are other forms of isolation and you know it's widened my uh, it's broadened my thinking and made me um you know quite frankly more aware of some of the other avenues we could be taking and so those senators it was you know a lot of people think it was me spearheading this but following the passage of that bill in 2019 uh, a group of senators uh, decided that we should go routinely and monitor the conditions of f- confinement in prisons. And so, up until the pandemic, we were doing that—going at least once a month to a you know a prison and um, and basically going in, seeing the conditions of confinement, meeting with prisoners, meeting with staff, and then documenting our visits. And so, that will continue when we're able to do so again. Uh, but I think that is a perfect example of where knowledge can change behavior and so we had started inviting members of parliament to join us and again that had just started when the pandemic hit so we're looking forward to continuing that and i think if the prime minister the minister of finance the cabinet all cabinet members met with the women living in the shelter just down the street here and recognized what we have to do, not just in terms of EI reform and childcare, but also in terms of fundamental, uh, using the federal spending power to ensure that everybody is um, able to recover and that no one truly is left behind. We could address poverty, um, I think quite expeditiously in this country and within one or two or three electoral cycles, We would see the direct direct benefit in terms of a higher standard of living for everybody, lower crime rates, lower health care costs, and, you know, basically a a better, if we were using well-being indexes, better well-being for everybody in this country.
0: Yeah, and I think that's one of the biggest issues, too. The privilege gets the most power, and oftentimes they ignore the minority groups. And I think it's important to use that privilege, like you said, to lower down crime rates, and to help those that are unemployed, so I know that you're a strong believer in creating a guaranteed livable income. You stated that a GLI is what Canada needs to mitigate the economic impact of the pandemic, and you've suggested that an income tax reform plan will be effective in covering the initial costs of this plan. Could you go more in depth about how this tax reform plan could work? And what are other changes that must be made for a GLI to be fueled? Right.
1: Well, the economist who I think has looked most at this and who um, I certainly support, well, the Parliamentary Budget Officer, Mark Carney, who used to be at the Bank of Canada and, um, and the World Bank, has also uh, commented on, on this and has talked about the, the perils of our, our you know, Hot pursuit of capitalism, if I can put it that way, Um, as well as uh, Dr. Evelyn Forget, who is an economist who worked in the healthcare system and documented the first pilot um, guaranteed livable income that was, or the basic income project that was done in Manitoba in Dauphin in the 70s. And you know she points out that we could have all kinds of tax reform. I'm prepared to acknowledge that i'm I'm not an economist. So I you know what these smart folks are saying about these who have experience. um one of my colleagues has proposed things like open banking as well and changing uh, the tax uh, system so that we don't ha- end up having the twenty richest billionaires in this country having made somewhere between 50 and 60 billion dollars during this pandemic that you know I I keep using the term but that's when we talk about criminal those are the things that is harmful to the rest of uh, the public whereas every dollar put into a child benefit which is a kind of guaranteed livable income that we already have or the guaranteed um, income supplement for seniors we know means an investment essentially of two dollars in the economy because people who are living and working in the country who are making a minimal wages, virtually all of their money is reinvested back into the economy through whether it's um, renting homes or property or apartment or buying food or clothes or other, other supplies. And so it's a better investment in our economy. And I think, you know, one of the things, it wasn't my idea, but um, former Justice uh, Louise Arbour in a podcast that she did with us, where I asked her about her wish list, she suggested that we could have, um, in addition to having a law reform commission uh, restarted, it's still on the books, but it hasn't hasn't actually been invigorated by having a budget attached to it, for you know for um, the better part of a decade now. But if we reinvigorated the law reform commission, they could actually look at not just criminal legal issues, but they could look at the whole tax. Law and tax reform that could be possible to make a more equitable situation for everyone. So, I don't pretend to have all of the answers, but I am I am certainly persuaded by those who have done this work, like Evelyn forget, like Mark Carney, and actually like Christian Freeland herself when she wrote about the need for ec- you know, income distribution when she was a reporter and wrote her book Plutocrats. So, I think there is. Uh, ample evidence of the need to address these issues and to and ample evidence that as the government has said we can and we should be addressing poverty the last commitment you know in, international and national commitment made to this was um you know probably long before um you, you were born which is when the commitment was made to end child poverty by uh the year 2000 well we're a long way off and so uh, we we need to I think, make some concerted efforts to, you know, really push this to happen. And just this morning, I had a message from one of my colleagues who's a senator in PEI. And PEI is primed to go. The premier has written to the prime minister saying, we're ready. Let's pilot the implementation Mm -hmm. of a guaranteed livable income in PEI. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and there are other provinces you know, Nova Scotia's interested Newfoundland, Labrador, Yukon. Uh, B.C. is interesting. They just did a report. And the conclusion of the summary of the report is that it isn't time for a basic income, but that you just open the report. And they talk about starting it with with women leaving violence, with people with disabilities, with people with children. So it's very clear that the time has come. It's just a matter of the political will to make it happen.
0: Right. And instead of a GLI, Canada has proposed a lot of financial aids, but these are actually a lot harder to apply for because its qualifications kind of act as a barrier instead of actually finding those who need assistance and then providing that assistance. And going beyond economic issues, we've also talked about how the pandemic has magnified the injustices of the prison system. Prisoners were forced to live in overcrowded conditions where things like social distancing and hygiene is next to impossible and we know that we have to rely on those two things to keep continuing to keep cases down has the plan of releasing low-risk prisoners been in effect yet and what is your vision of a judicial reform that will prevent future injustices against prisoners
1: well i wish it had been in fact it was this province ontario that did one of the most progressive um moves to you know, cut down the number of prisoners at the beginning of the pandemic by stopping um, all intermittent sentences from continuing. These are sentences where people serve on the weekends so that they can stay in their jobs or are their other care responsibilities. It also increased the temporary absence program so more people could be released. And the result was overall, uh, in the provinces and territories where that was done, uh, it resulted in an overall decrease Um, in the numbers of people going into the system. But even though the Minister of Public Safety directed uh, the head of corrections to to develop a release strategy, they did not do that. And worse still, during the early part of the pandemic, there were many people who had had actually been released by the parole board. So had been granted parole to be back integrating into the community and finishing off their sentences who were not released into the community because of the pandemic. And so we had this horrific reality that instead of doing what the minister instructed them to do, they basically put most everybody into a lockdown situation, which essentially means everybody was in a state of segregation. Not all of them in what would be um, termed solitary confinement. So not everybody only in their own cell, but certainly in small group settings and with limited access to any kind of fresh air, limited access even to PPE, to protective equipment, and limited access to the hygiene products and um, and the, the measures that were being encouraged. So not surprisingly, we saw a number of outbreaks in uh, prisons because the people, although they cut all visits for prisoners, staff were Obviously still had to come and go, and so we saw two things: one staff introducing uh, the virus into the prison and then spreading, as well as the risk then of uh, you know of fewer staff in the prison, and so again more excuses to to lock down uh, i think had the had the government accepted the amendments that i 'm referred to earlier in terms of had the government accepted the amendments that the Senate made to bill c eighty three which was the the legislation that amended the Corrections and Conditional Release Act to, uh, to switch segregation, to rename segregation to structured intervention units, we could have seen some remedies for this. Because what, the, what the, the Senate did was say, if Corrections wants to put someone in any form of isolation for more than 48 hours, and you may ask why 48 hours, because all of the research internationally, as well as the evidence that's come before the courts on cases involving solitary confinement or segregation, have shown that permanent, irreparable physiological, psychological, neurological, uh, and sometimes physical damage can be done within hours, and certainly within 48 to 72 hours of someone being in isolation. So knowing that, it's irresponsible to not require corrections to have to establish why they would be permitted to keep someone in for longer than that period. So that was um, one of the Senate amendments was to require uh, corrections to have to establish to a court why they needed to keep someone isolated. Um, Other provisions were there are currently, or there were when the legislation was passed in 1992, Uh, essentially off ramps out ways to decarcerate ways to get people out of the system who are overrepresented and at the time the legislation was passed in the early 90s um, that was predominantly Indigenous people women they were and still are the fastest growing prison population since then we've also seen massive increases in those with mental health issues um, mostly people who have had past trauma as well. And people who are struggling sometimes with intellectual disabilities as well. So uh, as well, we've seen more uh, people who are non-binary, trans, who have been isolated in segregation as well. So we've provided um, a mechanism that would expand those provisions to allow for communities to welcome back into the community, whether it was indigenous prisoners, black prisoners, trans prisoners, prisoners who have mental health issues, who should really be uh, not in the system to begin with. And and so we pushed for those measures to be expanded and more resources to be put into the community to accommodate folks being, if they need to be held accountable, held accountable in those kinds of community settings. The other thing we did is um, provide, you know, put in an amendment that really modeled what Louise Arbour recommended back in 1996. In fact, on April 1st of uh, 2021, it'll be the 25th anniversary of her report. And one of her recommendations was that where the way corrections treats a prisoner amounts to correctional interference with a lawful sentence, then that prisoner should be able to go to court. And what do we mean by that? Well. When a judge sentences someone to prison, they presume they are going to prison not to be punished, but as the punishment for the or the penalty for the behavior that they've been deemed responsible for. They expect when they go to prison that they will have access to programs, to services to address the very issues that brought them there in the first place. They don't expect them to be then. Punished further, kept in isolation, denied access to their family, the community, or the supports that will assist them to ultimately integrate back into the community. And so, if the way corrections treat someone interferes with that sentencing intention, then that prisoner or someone representing them should be able to take the matter back to court and have the case revisited and potentially the sentence shortened or the parole and eligibility period shortened or the person released. And so, that was a remedy that the the Senate introduced uh, all of those components that I just mentioned the government rejected and instead said, "No, we have you know we have a good model here it 's going to work and suffice to say, you know a year and a half later, uh, the Senators who voted for that, the third of us who refused to accept that government message but were outvoted. Um, are in a situation where it's very clear that had those measures been in place, there would at least have been some remedies and possibly we would have seen a more robust uh, releasing mechanism so that those who could be in the community would have been released into the community. And lest anybody listening thinks, why would we be opening up the gates like that? Two things I want people to be aware of. One, in any given year, 5,000 people minimum are released from prison a year. Uh, that does not result in an increase in crime rates. In fact, our crime rates are going down. And yet the fastest growing prison population in this country is women, particularly Indigenous women, Black women, and women with disabling mental health issues. That is usually not who we are thinking of or anybody is invoking in the name of public safety when they argue for a longer, more punitive sentences. And that's one. Secondly, if we go back uh, you know, 25 years, In the mid-90s, all of the heads of corrections in this country, the 14 men, they were all men at the time, they were all white men at the time, the 14 heads of corrections who were responsible for prisons, all prisons, federal and provincial, in those days, they said, not me, not the 30 senators, but they said that they could release uh, 75% of the people then jailed and not increase a risk to public safety. Why? because they recognize many people are in for uh, behavior that is really them trying to negotiate poverty, addiction, all kinds of other issues. And so when we know that, and we know that the human and the financial cost of locking people up is so horrendous, and that we know that we could be reallocating those dollars to these other services, healthcare, education, housing, guaranteed livable income, why would we not be embarking on this? Uh, and the prison system is the only system where we you know, nobody is refused nobody is turned away because they don't fit the mandate and there seems to be a bottomless pit of resources to keep pushing people into that sector if any other system failed as profoundly as our prison system it would be shut down in a heartbeat and so you know we need to rethink where we where we're putting our time energy and our financial and human resources. And I think they can be far better invested.
0: Right, and instead of prioritizing the actual penal system, I think like you mentioned, it's important to spend our money and resources on providing programs for those prisoners. And as we're speaking of judicial reform, the decriminalization of drugs has been an issue of debate for quite a while. You've outwardly supported the decriminalization of drugs. So, what do you believe are the pros and cons when we decarcerate nonviolent drug users, and why do you believe the pros Uh, outweigh the cons? Well, I
1: think we just have to look to jurisdictions like Portugal, where they did this, um, you know, more than a decade ago, and see what the results are. So. They decriminalized drugs. And instead of um, just decriminalizing and doing nothing, they also invested the money that they were spending on law enforcement and imprisonment into community-based resources of the sort that we were just discussing. And so uh, what we've seen is addiction Um, addiction rates have decreased so some people say well if you make it more freely available or you don't criminalize you don't sanction then more people will use drugs in fact we know that the based on that evidence but I would say also on the evidence of what's happened um, as we've you know engaged in this so-called war on drugs for the last 20-30 years is that people have resorted to more uh, dangerous drugs the more interception or interdiction uh, techniques have intensified. And what I mean by that, let me just talk about the prisons again for a minute. Dr. Diane Riley, who was a doctor who worked in the prison system back in the uh, 80s and 90s, she recommended that instead of cracking down on um, drug use in the prisons, that instead they focus on programming and other services and argued that if they crack down on drug use, and um, penalize people more they would go to harder drugs and in fact within you know less than a few years of them doing that that's exactly what they saw so people who you know knew that marijuana for instance the the um the effects stay in a urine and blood for up to a month would switch to more dangerous drugs whether it was pcp heroin and we saw greater challenges in terms of behavior, but also in terms of addiction patterns. Those people also, that same sorts of things have happened on the street. That's in part why we have huge challenges with opioids now, as we've seen, you know, despite now the decriminalization of cannabis, uh, before that happened, the crackdown on drug use and the crackdown on possession has meant that, you know, we've seen more uh, harmful drugs also being ingested. So the The benefit of decriminalizing and on ensuring that those people who previously may have been pursued and criminalized have support supports in places like Portugal have resulted in decreased uh, drug use, as well as decreased crime, decreased victimization, and um, you know better investment in other services lower costs of the healthcare system and the criminal legal system so again why wouldn't we venture down that path and in this context there's already a bill been introduced i it seemed to escape public attention but uh one of my colleagues who used to be the head of the opp here in ontario uh, the ontario provincial police gwen boniface introduced a private bill mm-hmm. um, a week and a half ago to decriminalize drugs and there are many many of us within the Senate who support it. I suspect there are many within the House of Commons who also support it. Uh, the challenge will be whether we'll get these private bills through before, you know, there's rumors of an election before an election. So I think it really is the responsibility of all of us to be raising these issues to try and ensure that at least during the election and hopefully with a new government that we would see um, whoever the new government is working on these sorts of issues.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, Decriminalizing drug use will definitely help those who are actually struggling with drug addiction to receive help without actually entering the penal system. And moving away from the prison system, environmental policies and practices have always disproportionately disadvantaged Indigenous groups in Canada. And as an Ontario student myself, I know that the curriculum only recently began to include Indigenous history as part of our education. And to be honest, I think this new curriculum is essential if we want our young generation to acknowledge and address Indigenous issues. We've been taught that the increase of industrialized land has made pollution and the lack of clean water one of the largest issues Indigenous communities are facing right now. And I know you're a big big advocate on respecting Indigenous rights, why do you think the government still lacks the initiative to provide basic necessities for indigenous people, and what do you believe needs to be done to finally start heading towards the um, I, well?
1: I agree with everything you said, and I think, um, again, I think it's political will, and it's the it's ensuring that we actually have equitable access to our country's resources. Um, I'm going to move away. Answer it by first. Talking about another example, for instance, you know, right now there is huge issue around. We just had the carbon um, tax decision from the Supreme Court of Canada, and we hear lots of folks arguing that we shouldn't be pivoting to green energy or renewable resources. It is inevitable. We have to. We have to for the sake of you know. It, it may not be in my lifetime because I'm getting old, and I'll probably cark it before we see the results of this, but for you, for coming, you know, all young people and coming generations, we owe it to uh, do something different. And when we look at how you could do things differently, Finland has a, at the time that oil was discovered in Alberta, and oil was also discovered in Finland, and the populations of the two uh, regions were about the same of Alberta and Finland. What Finland did was so vastly different than what happened here in Canada. In Alberta, they took those resources, and yes, they did, um, you know, extract the oil. They invested, but every penny went into a collective, um, a, a policy decision that was about benefiting the collective. So now, if you're in Finland, no matter where in the smallest community at the end of the longest fjord you can still get access to health care and education clean water um, all of the things you need to live that is not true in Alberta particularly in First Nations communities and although some are doing really well because of oil royalties the focus on more individual as opposed to collective well-being has meant that you know I lived in Alberta for a while and I'm you know, selfishly must admit, I enjoyed not having sales tax. But that, you know, that was such a short-sighted way to invest those resources so that, you know, certain people enjoyed the benefits, but not all. And I think we can learn from that and say, as we pivot now, we need to be looking at what actually brings everybody forward, not just those who have the most. And, and if we make those kinds of policy decisions, then that means we take care of and really address all of the Um, the communities that don't have adequate housing, water, drinkable water, um, who don't have, you know, living space, who don't have, um, you know, enough food, who don't have food security, let alone um, enough food. And so, Those are policy decisions that we can and I argue we must make, but it does mean that we need to pivot away from the influences of that, you know, really are south of the border that have really impacted us. And to look at some of the, the countries we more want to emulate during this pandemic, we've seen some incredible leadership from smaller countries and in particular from, I would say, Women-headed and often racialized women-headed countries, where policy decisions have been made that impact most of the collective, and I think we need to learn from those sorts of approaches and be bold and take courageous uh, steps, and not you know continually be um, fearful of the powerful, um, you know, billionaires and folks who have too often. Influenced decision making. Now that doesn't mean obviously we can totally ignore um, economics. We have to be making sure that what we do is viable. But I think there's a long way between where we are now and where we could be.
0: Right, and. Like you said, policy decision-making should definitely ensure collective well-being over ind- individual well-being because that way Canada can improve its relationship with the Indigenous community as a whole. And for our final question, and to end off on a positive note, I'd like to ask what advice would you give to young Canadians out there who are also passionate about creating progressive political change? And how can they put their name uh, and voice well, that's, out there?
1: that's... You know, really, one I say, um, I always say to folks: If you love what you do, you will do well at it. And if you never stop challenging uh, those things that need to be challenged, you can't go wrong. We all learn from mistakes. I've certainly made tons of mistakes in in my life. It's but it's also what I've learned from. And if I had never taken risks that sometimes felt pretty scary. I would not have learned um, so many of the valuable lessons and I, I would, you know, I'm still doing that. I hope, I hope, you know, I mean, getting out on social media is not something that I'm comfortable with necessarily, but you know, it's, uh, it was encouraged by my daughter and so many other young people saying, you know, young people don't even get this information. They don't even think you're relevant and I may not be. And so, you know, I, push me aside, make room for yourself to be leading in this area because you are leaders. The fact that you're doing this podcast, the fact that you're leading in in young people's um, Mm -hmm. opinions and understanding of these issues is so vitally important to changing. And I would say we're a democracy. Let's make our democracy work. Uh, I support Mary Lou McFedron's bill to lower the voting age to 16. I think there are so many incredibly informed and engaged young people who don't vote. And I think uh, we need to reinvigorate our our democracy and ensure that uh, all voices are heard. And And if you're in a privileged position and you have access to information, but you're not comfortable acting on it, then pass it to someone who will act on it and make sure they know about it so that action can happen. I don't in any way judge folks who, you know, need to protect their livelihood, their, their, you know, their housing, their income, uh, particularly if they're taking care of others who are, um, are more vulnerable. Uh, but I do say if you have access to information, to ideas, and you don't you know, share them. Then you know that's a problem. And we all learn and grow from sharing these. So, thank you for all the work you're doing. Thank you for, um, you know, all the efforts that the the incredible group you're involved with is doing in terms of making sure other young people and 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 quite frankly, old gits like me know what is happening and what young people are thinking and and are pushing us to to do our job. And I I don't expect anybody to um, to you know, do my job for me, but I do count all of you amongst those who are and should be holding me to account because it's the it's you know youth like you in the Youth Political Assembly that will actually um, show us some new and, and incredibly exciting and um, illuminating
0: ways to go. Well, wow, thank you so much for sharing. I know that I for sure gained so much insight on these issues in just this one recording session. And with that, this episode of Youth Politics Action has come to a close. I'm so glad we had this opportunity to talk today about these issues involving the underrepresented communities in Canada. Oh, just and call me I Kim wish all and, the best. Uh, thank you very pain. much.
1: And same to you. And just, you know, uh, please, uh, you know, just keep on and uh, ensuring that we do our job as well.
0: Thank you for tuning into this episode of Youth Politics Action with Senator Pate. Tune in next Saturday when our next episode will premiere. For now, follow at Youth Political Assembly on Instagram for student opportunities and political stories, opinions, and explanations.